Welcome to Dramatic Pause. My name is Donna Spencer, artistic producer at the Fire Hall Arts Centre, located in the ancestral and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish and Tsleil-Waututh nations in Vancouver, British Columbia. As the world has had to take a dramatic pause in response to the COVID pandemic, artists and arts organizations have been deeply affected by this. They have had to cancel performances, cease filming, doing all those things that they do so well to get the arts to the arts audience. And in view of that, in their true creative nature, they have started to do other things. So here at the Fire Hall, we've decided to stay in touch through a podcast. My guest today is theater and film director, writer, actor, musician, singer, mother, and all-round creative being, Renai Morisot. She's worked with the Fire Hall as a director on our production of God and the Indian. She was in our production of Buzzgum Blues way back in 2004, and she was scheduled to direct Taran Kutnayu's White Noise, which was postponed because of COVID-19 and which we hope to do in the spring of 2021. Welcome, Renai Morisot. Welcome, Donna. Thank you. This is also awesome to be here um, and to, 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 to share and to, to catch up. Yes, it is absolutely, because I haven't seen you since before this all happened. I mean, really. Uh, so how are you doing and how is this COVID thing affecting you? Well, I am doing a lot of gardening. I have slugs in my garden. But other than the, the slugs in my garden, it's been actually quite uh, uh, relaxing. I've been pretty much at home with my grandson, uh, my daughter, and uh, one of my, my girls, uh, Jennifer Brousseau, who's been staying with me for a little while. And I've been basically kind of hanging close to home. And we have been doing we have been doing some online. Um, McGurl has been doing some online musical uh, performances for different and who organizations. Who is McGurl? Can you tell me a bit about that? Um, McGurl is an Aboriginal women's ensemble. It's it's basically a collective of of women in, from different territories, uh, from the Teltan with Una Ann Moyer, who's an incredible visual artist. Uh, Jennifer Brousseau, Anishinaabe and French from Serpent River uh, First Nation. Uh, Tier and Tracy, um, who are sisters, Tracy uh, Whitesell and Tier Laporte. Uh, they're from the uh, territories in Saskatchewan, uh, Métis Cree, and myself. And, and so we've had McGirls from that, that come into it and are sort of almost like honorary McGirls. But I mean, the funny thing is, is that we're all older women now. We should be called McCookums. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, what are we trying to say here? Okay, <laughs> you know, but it's the idea of McGurl is, is, um, uh, is sort of a term of endearment that when I grew up, uh, my elders and family would say, yeah, stum McGurl, like, come here, McGurl. So it was a term of endearment. So that was sort of why um, uh, we named the, the group McGurl. And how did you guys come together? I mean, did, was this just something that you connected on because you love music or yeah well I certainly do love music but um we we started out way back in the um, 
late 1990s as a group called Tie Away. And that was with um, Sherry Miracle, um, Sheila Miracle, uh, Sandy Schofield, and myself. I remember that. Um, the late Lisa Sazama joined us um, at that point as well. And so there was a group of us that we, we kind of um, sang songs together. And that kind of just dwindled. I mean, all of, all you know, Sherry moved to Toronto. Sandy has her own incredible uh, music. Um, Sheila Miracle is, in fact, a full-time teacher um, and now a mother of two children living on the Six Nations Reserve in Ontario. So we're all kind of um, out of that uh, and, and sort of came a girl. And the idea is, is that, you know, I hold a lot of uh, ceremonial and social songs from my family. Uh, and so a lot of the social songs are what my girl sings. And so that's sort of, you know, and then and the idea is that we, ha we, we sing in harmony. And that's well, always fun. And I believe you were scheduled to be in Boston performing yeah. just before yeah. we were told we couldn't go anywhere and we had to close down. Yeah. We were to go to Boston, and of course, we were going to be performing at the Vancouver International Folk Festival, and that, of course, got cancelled, which is really kind of, it's such an unusual time to be in, because that, what's Vancouver without its folk festival, <laughs> you know? And then again, it's like, we're not, you know, any kind of live performance, right? So, I mean, how was it for, for Fire Hall? I mean, having to sort of maneuver all of these different changes and you know it's very challenging and I would have to say that uh, for me it was really a question of of getting over the fact that every night at about 6 37 o'clock I would get this adrenaline rush because usually we have shows on then so I'd be getting an adrenaline rush going okay I wonder how the actors are I wonder if it's going to is there going to be a house so it was a big sort of like oh uh, I've been doing this for over 40 years and wow I am now <laughs> realizing that my body almost every night has this little thing that's about, there's a show on. And, and the realization that there wasn't a show on anywhere, as far as I knew, happening in the world <laughs> was a huge like wake up call to how important live performance is, whether it's music, theater, or dance. And I was just down at Jericho for a walk uh, last night and I was thinking about the folk festival and how much time I've spent at it and how much Vancouverites love it and how good it is for our souls. So I was sort of thinking about the connection between art and how we feel. And I noticed now that there's lots of reports on this mental health of people and how the mental health of people are being effect is being affected by this lack of able ability to connect, which we stimulate and encourage so much through the art. So thanks for asking. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's such, it's a different sort of thing because you, you're running a, a, a company. You know, I'm just an independent contractor that works for companies such as yourself and, and you know, the, the Vancouver um, uh, Folk Festival and stuff too. But I just find that that it's a different landscape. I mean, I'm, I'm as a contractor, you know, um, am able to sort of keep myself busy at home. And, you know, whether it's my gardening or my, my, my uh, son's um, uh, schooling, you know, uh, um, online uh, as, as it has moved on. And now he's able to go to his school uh, twice, uh, uh, twice a week uh, for June. 
what is it that we need to do in order to keep our art practices alive? And in what way is it that we, we maneuver mm-hmm. through this sort of time that we're in? Um, and I know that as a, pers- as a person, as an individual, I'm, I'm doing my own sort of uh, answers to that. But I'm curious, how is that, other than doing a podcast, I guess, like how is that for a company, a theater company? Well, I think what I'm doing is actually trying to strategize as to how we can get back to doing some live performances. So part of our plan is to try to do small-scale live performances in the future. Mm-hmm. So figuring out how that can happen and how how um, we can budget for it, because, of course, box office is a big part of what we do. Um, and uh, that's a big... That's a big switch like okay where are we in a year from now i mean will we be able to still be doing live performances and i think actually the fire hall um, being such a small venue we have a a little bit greater flexibility than than some of the companies that are running huge huge organizations so i think small closer to the ground grassroots organizations probably can be a little bit more flexible than others Mm -hmm. But this is not about me. This is about <laughs> you. <laughs> okay. well, I'm curious, However, though. you keep asking, and I'll keep yeah. trying to respond. <laughs> okay. you, you know, when I first actually met you, I met you on 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 television in a very strange way. <laughs> uh, you don't know this, but I became a fan of North of Sixty, ah. and uh, there was totally amazed by the great work of the actors on that show, and I'm sure there maybe quibbles about some of the writing, but out of that show, I became a faithful follower of that show. And so was so honored (laughs) when I started to meet some of the actors who had been in that show, because it was the first, I believe, probably the first Indigenous-based story that was on television in Canada. Many, many of of the actors who are now working um, in film and television around the world uh, but also on our stages, we're working on that show. Yeah, yeah, and it ran for um, seven or so years. Well, yeah, I don't remember. But I think that, um, that you know, the, it, just to, 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 in terms of it being the first, I'm, I'm not, um, certainly maybe as, as, a, as a television series, but Beachcombers right, also had... Right. You know, people there. Uh, Charlene Alec was a child at the t- at the time, and who's from uh, the Slaywatooth, and she's you know, a counselor now of of uh, that's part of the Slaywatooth First Nation, and um, a variety of other. Marianne Jones, who who makes film, uh, is a producer and uh, writer of of uh, uh, a film uh, Samoyan, which is a show about water that she did, I believe with their partner, uh, Jeff Bear. So there's a lot of people that came out of, out of the, the world of, of making uh, film and television. I mean, but this is my first love. Like, doing theater has always been my first love in terms of the kind of work that, that's being um, told now. Um, and I think that for Buzzdom, Blues in in 2004 was one of the first times that I worked with Fire Hall. Um, And I'm not trained. I didn't go to university to to be a theater person. I kind of grew up with a lot of stories in my own backyard, in my own family, in terms of of ceremonial stories and and, uh, Wasagichak and Nanabujo and 
and and had those stories sort of in a live reality with with my family, you know, um, and so and and the stories of of displacement. Not that none of my family went to to residential school, uh, but we were displaced from from our traditional um, homelands in the Treaty One territory in Manitoba. So I grew up with a lot of those kind of stories, um, and storytellers. So I think that that in in the world of theater, uh, live performance, where you where you gather audiences together to to witness you know uh, a sharing of a story and 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 their voice within it or uh, if they don't know what that history or that culture is, that there is something about theatre that allows Canadians to, to get a glimpse of, of um, Indigenous um, uh, perspectives and Indigenous uh, worldviews. And I think that's one, one of the things that I loved about the Fire Hall has always done in supporting, you know, Indigenous um, playwrights. Thank you for that. I, I was just thinking of you, because um, I know you're from, well, I know you as coming from Winnipeg, mm -hmm. um, and wondering what you thought you were going to be when you grew up. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know, but it seems right now, I, I'm still a storyteller in terms of, 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 of telling stories within our, the songs that, that I get to sing, and honored to sing. Um, the stories I get to to tell in terms of writing for for theater and and uh, and the stories I get to tell in directing um, uh, television. I just finished directing uh, six episodes of a series called Quest Out West, and it was um, with uh, uh, Tracy Kim Bono from the Insilk Okanagan um, uh, Penticton Indian Band, and um, she's a food sovereigntist. And so we, we got to meet elders that were of like mind, that grew, that, that went on to the lands of their territories of the, the Okanagan and the Shishwetmoch people. That was the area that we concentrated on. And we met elders that took us out onto <laughs> the lands and we picked and gathered and cooked food. So it's a, a cooking show of, of food that we've gathered. And, and Tracy Kimbano, who is the host, and the producer of that show, along with Bright Lights Productions, um, uh, hired me to do to deliver six um, episodes. So I was quite excited last year to to do that. So all of the elements of the stories is really the um, what's the pulse of of the story that we're trying to tell, and 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 the fact that I'm so curious about what that means, you know, in in how people are are in it, like they're in these stories, and so, in particular for Quest Out West, which will be on APTN in um, I'm hoping in the fall of this year, uh, season three. Um, that we we get to to share these stories and, and audiences and get to to see what we're, we're doing, and that means also with theater and film. Well, it's very interesting that you, you, you've, that, um, learning that uh, from your elders, and it's right now during COVID-19, everybody is gardening. <laughs> and I was speaking with uh, Lee Miracle, um, and she has posted, I believe, um, um, uh, that really, um, Perhaps COVID-19 is really about the world 
reminding us that we haven't been taking very good care of the, the Earth, uh, Mother Earth, uh, and that maybe it's time for us to step up and help heal that wound that we have created um, in her and that the environment is so badly damaged that this is why COVID-19 uh, and these viruses are coming forward to remind us that we need to slow down and be more caring of the world that we live in. So I, I, I find that, that, that we're all being uh, encouraged and going back to gardening and baking bread and <laughs> even going to the point of you know ground, grinding our own uh, flour in some cases. Wow. Um, this is not me by any means. <laughs> I'm not the bad bread baker, <laughs> but I do have a garden. Um, uh, is, is, is kind of fascinating, like, okay, m maybe we are meant to learn. Certainly we are meant to learn something from this. And then with what is going on in, in mm -hmm. the States and with the yeah. um, continual um, police uh, brutality, it seems to me that something is happening that to remind us that we are not in control and that perhaps we need to go back to teachings that the indigenous communities um, have known for years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, how do you listen? I mean, this is the thing, right? Is that, you know, in, in, in a lot of our, our ceremonies, it's a really about listening to, to, you know, not only the songs, but to, if you're in a sweat, listening to uh, the, the rocks, the, grand, the grandfathers that are in the center of the, of the sweat. Our listening has become colonized in a sense that, um, We've been um, we've been so um, marginalized, and I'm not talking just about Indigenous people. I'm talking about Canadians in general. Right. That that you know the way we listen to the environments that we're in, the way we um, we listen to uh, ourselves and our own our own rhythms in in terms of how we're moving in the world, and what's really unique about a lot of our in the ceremonies that I grew up with, with the sweat and the sun dance and the pipe ceremonies and uh, the smudging and, and those things is that it's really about listening. That a lot of times when we, you know, our, pray, our prayers are our wishes. And so it's not that we're not listening, but we're requesting support and help. But a lot of times when we finish with our ceremonies, it's about how we leave those ceremonies and listen to the environments that we're in. And I think that in this, this era of time that we're in, how do we listen? <laughs> and in what way do we get out of the way of actually truly listening without a colonized mind or without a, a mind that's, that's uh, been impacted you know, by one's trauma or, or fear, you know. Um, there's a, you know, I, f I find that in this, this time right now um, and the fact that there's so much harm that's happening to our, our, our brothers and sisters uh, that aren't Caucasian, um, how do we um, make it that this, that the world that we have within our own life, in our own lived reality, what is it that we do, you know, when we, we go out into, into this, this city of Vancouver, you know? And, and I mean, it's very simple in, in a sense that, you know, being very humble about what our, 
true nature is, and I think that's what this has brought about for me in, in the gardening, you know, and in, in listening. And now that the fact that I have slugs, I'm, I'm asking myself, okay. Why do I have slugs? Why do I have slugs? <laughs> you know. And what should I do? What should with, I do with my slugs? And how do you honor them? <laughs> yeah, how do I honor them? So I'm going to put a board down, and apparently that's it. Put a board down, they crawl under the board, you lift the board up, they're all stuck on the bottom, and then you get rid of the board. So that's my, that's my plan. <laughs> I'll do that when I get home. Well, it, it, uh, there are a couple of things that I want to mm -hmm. take from that and, and get back to. One, as artists and, and theater artists, we're always encouraged to listen to what we are being told by the our artists that we're working with. So mm -hmm. there's a sharing of that process within um, the creation of good theater. And I, that's not to discount the fact that we're, we, we don't listen, but also in this... Um, we don't listen as individuals often, but um, in this COVID situation that we're in, people are being uh, encouraged to create a lot online and digitally. And of course, it's really difficult, except perhaps in Zoom, and even with Zoom and some of the other platforms, you're not really listening. You're responding to what was said. Um, so it's, it's fascinating to me that as artists, we are um, being encouraged to do more online. And um, I think that's a challenge. And I'm hearing from people that really, they just want to get back to live performance so they can hear and listen in a room together, which takes me back to the storytelling aspect that you as a child grew up with. Many people did not grow up with that storytelling. Maybe Many people grew up watching television. Right. And people put their kids in front of television. Yeah. And that's that's a different, very different kind of listening because there's always that false glass or whatever, mm. <laughs> the screen yeah. uh, between you and the people that are actually telling the stories. Not to say that good film and good television can't be effective, but it's a different kind of listening than listening for um, what the birds are doing. And, and I, I remember going down to Jericho um, right after this happened and, and I could hear birds. I could actually yeah. hear things. Um, yeah. And it made me humble to realize that I hadn't really paid much attention to them or the waves for a long time. And I, so I think, I'm hoping that after this is over that I'll continue to listen in a different way. But, in, yeah. and in terms of the, the bigger issues that you're talking about, you have done a lot of work here in the downtown east side with as healing in healing projects and weaving stories and encouraging um, uh, the arts to be used as well. I don't know if it's in, I don't know if you consciously set out to encourage the arts to be used as a healer, mm -hmm. but it is a healing. Uh, it can be a very healing uh, process. Um, I my question then takes me to uh, how 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 do we as the Caucasians and I'm not asking you to teach, I'm just asking <laughs> you to share. I know that many cases we are always, we, we go out to the indigenous communities or the black communities or the Asian Canadian communities and say, okay, what do we need to do? And it seems to me that we need to figure that out. But I'd like to hear from you how you, how, how a Caucasian who wants to be an ally perhaps should step into the picture. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's a that's, that's always the question of of allyship. Um, 
there's a, a, a saying that came out of the, uh, the Wet'suwet'en uh, uh, people that are fighting on the, about the pipeline that they call it the white lines. And what it, that means is that, that the, those allies that are there fighting for that same cause and not building a pipeline in, in northern British Columbia, that the white lines are, the, are, the, are the, 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 the white people that will go in the front of the line because then the police aren't going to be as violent. Like that's a literal translation of what's happening right now. Um, so on the spectrum, you know, on the spectrum of, of that question, I often think about, you know, what's the difference between an ally and a co-conspirator. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and, and for me in the arts, um, there has been, a, like yourself, a lot of co-conspirators that I've worked with to, to support the voice of, of, of Indigenous uh, worldview, whether that's on stage or music and theater and film and television and stuff like that. But in in the um, in the idea of allyship, the, uh, we say that for people that you know, like do your homework. I mean, there's so pl there's plenty of of of, of uh, information online. Uh, for people to understand sort of the historical realities of, of uh, what's happening in Canada today. Um, there's been some, when we talk about what happened in the States uh, with uh, Black Lives Matters and, and the kind of narratives that are coming out of, um, uh, on Facebook and Twitter and, and, and uh, the, the commonality between Indigenous and, and, and um, uh, Black Lives Matters and, and uh, the connectivity of, of our, our colonialized uh, uh, oppression, um, which is great that we're, we're having these conversations now. And so for, for non-black and non-indigenous people to sort of see these kind of realities and the witnessing of what that represents um, is, for, is, is, to, is to just to create the space that there doesn't necessarily need to have your words upon it. Mm. The fact that um, for, for um, my people and, and, and especially the work that I do in the downtown east side here, you know, working with um, different groups is just being able to allow um, art to be a vehicle for... Um, Indigenous for in this one particular project called Home Homelessness and the Culture in Between. And that was about Indigenous women that have been homeless. And my um, work in that, in that capacity is, is simply to give them the space and agency to tell the kind of story they want to tell. Um, not, not forcing upon them anything to say anything about homelessness or anything like that, but, but to celebrate the fact that that no matter where we come from, no matter what nation you come from, we all have stories of home. Somehow, we have those stories that are intertwined in in, in our lived experiences today, and sometimes those stories of home are traumatizing. And so, how do we dance upon that? How do how is it that we kind of work with the with these uh, indigenous women? To, to share a story that, that might be um, 
almost not a, not a good story to tell. By allowing, and, and what I do in those situations is that I, I have a series, and a lot of this work comes back to, and, and you were talking about, we were talking about David Diamond the other, <laughs> um, earlier before we started recording this, comes um, out of Augusta Boel's work in, in, in social justice and um, being able to, to uh, um, create a safe space uh, by facilitating uh, conversations um, and allowing those participants to be the experts of, of their own lived experience. And so when, going back to that same, the question that you already asked about, you know, um, non-Native people looking at what's happening in the world today in terms of allyship and co-conspiratorship <laughs> is that when, when stories are being told within an artistic frame, how do you, as a witness of seeing this story, how do you support the hope that you're seeing within the story? And I always like to say, you know, how do we make hope actionable in the work that I'm doing in the downtown east side in, in creating um, theatrical presentations, poems, words, visual art. I mean, the work that we did for um, home homelessness and the culture in between was through the Urban Inc. Productions. And the video is online on the Urban Inc. Um, website. And uh, the video is called SRO. And there was two sort of things that happened with that production. One was a play that was written by Brenda Prince called SRO. And SRO stands for Single Room Occupancy. And then out of that came uh, the community engaged art process, which I sort of, which I led with uh, Sophie Morasti. And that project was called Home Homelessness and the Culture in Between. And so we have a video online that's five minutes long um, that talks about how the women went through this eight month process where we met once a week for eight months. And at the end of it, they, they created a presentation. And so they, um, worked in visual arts. We did body mapping and, and um, a lot of different visual arts. Uh, dance um, with, uh, with, with um, I Michelle? Yeah, I, I would like to say Michelle. She, she um, I can't remember her name. Oh my God. But it, it, um, we had uh, Rosemary Georgeson coming in and, and Valine um, uh, do, to do writing uh, with the women. Uh, myself and, and uh, uh, Sophie Morasti, we did um, a lot of theater and, and vocal improvisations and stuff. Well, in SRO, uh, yeah. when Brenda, I think Brenda wrote that as yeah. a project that came out of uh, a women's writers group, I think. Yes. And then I think, I believe we actually um, read that piece. That piece got read as part of one of our BC Buds way back when. And then she went off, I think, and got her degree. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, so when I heard that it was happening and that you were taking it on and it was being developed in this way and it was being used as a tool, I thought that was fabulous. Uh, so it had a real growth growth period <laughs> there. Um, yeah. And a very needed uh, um, interaction with women in, in the neighborhood. Uh, really power, uh, powerful, I would think, giving them agency that they hadn't had. Um, mm -hmm. I have two, two points from that. I'm, I'm curious 
what kind of follow-up happens when those workshop productions get done to, to, to help keep those women hopeful, yeah. but also uh, how you process that, because that kind of work is pretty draining. It is, but it's also incredibly, uh, uh, I'm pretty honored and, and, and completely, uh, it is uh, a lot of work, but it's also, there's, I, what I get out of it is just sort of my own, my own growth, you know, uh, and um, so that, that always seems to be, you know, what, what happens um, in, in those situ in that, in these, this case. The work of the single room occupancy, SRO, um, is for uh, the women I've uh, helped along with Don Brennan, who was the then uh, general manager of Urban Inc. Productions, help the women put together proposals to continue developing their words and their visual art and, and their movement. One woman is doing some movement um, in, in the group of eight women that we uh, went through this uh, eight-month process. Renai, can you just fill me in a bit more on the core uh, on the core project? Core the pro core project, C A U R core project, is uh, was created by uh, Jessie Core um, La Hill, and she is a, um, a web designer and um, recognized the, the fact that the South Asian women in the Lower Mainland didn't really have a voice, even within. The, uh, and this is me talking here, even within the um, uh, funded Canadian uh, productions, that there wasn't a lot of women involved in those productions, whether on the board of directors or in their presentation of their songs or the presentation of their stories as South Asian women. So the core project was to give them a vehicle for these women that, that were from a variety of different backgrounds to uh, have agency over their songs and their voice and, and what they're doing. So when uh, I met Jesse when McGurl was performing at an event for um, a, a union, I can't remember what, I'm sorry, I'm so bad with what, which, <laughs> which performance we were at. But anyway, she uh, came and said, I would love to talk to you about some of your work. And, and so what came out of that was a website called, that, that hasn't been launched yet, it's gonna be called um, unseated.ca, and it's gonna be with these women, start off with these women that are from the SRO project. They're gonna have um, the opportunity to share their, their voice again. Um, we have a photographer, um, Callie Spitzer, who uh, does some incredible uh, photography. So she's gonna be involved in helping to create the visual of that. So the work that's coming out of the SRO project and the women that I worked with on the home, homelessness, and culture in between are going to have a website dedicated to their voice and to where they are today in terms of the art that they're creating. Now I'm gonna put you on the spot a bit here. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna ask, I mean, right now there's a lot of, there's certainly a movement in the States, there's a movement in, Aust in New Zealand, there's a movement mm -hmm. uh, even happening uh, uh, in Canada to unfund the police. Oh. <laughs> so I'm gonna oh put you God. on the spot and, <sighs> and, and, and the, I, the, the concept that I'm imagining here is, and what I seem to hear being talked about is um, changing how police forces work, but also taking some of the money that's going into m 
uh, maintaining police forces, which are based obviously on a military kind of uh, model, uh, and using that money for social and community development, which seems to me that that's the kind of work that needs to be funded to build strength within and give agency to a lot of the uh, uh, individuals across this country, mm -hmm. regardless of culture, who do not have voice. Right. And it um, uh, seems to me that, um, anyway, I'm, I'm curious as to uh, whether you whether you see it that way, whether you've thought about it, but it's, I know that a lot of projects start that are fabulous and give agency to people and then they run out of money because it's a project grant or it's a whatever grant. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it takes more than just one project to develop agency or in, uh, yeah. empowerment. Wow. <laughs> okay. Well, and if, you can say if, no comment if you yeah, want. Yeah, no but comment. I, but I'll, what I'll say, what I'll say is, is, is this: is that when we create opportunities for those people that are pushed to the margins of society, whether that's because of homelessness or addiction or whatever it is, pushed to the the sides because of even their cultural uh, practices where women are supposed to be at a certain distance from the action that's happening in a community moving forward. Anytime that you give the opportunity for those people on the sidelines to, to, to have a voice, you're strengthening the community. And, and so, yeah, like if, if it means that we have to not pay the police, you know, this amount of money and 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 you know we're going to unpolice you know certain realities and and to have uh, money towards the arts and towards uh, the creation of, of of narratives that define a worldview i'm totally for that you know i'm i'm totally for that the fact that i get to 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 share stories with with uh, with Jessica, who does the core project, and what I'm doing with Indigenous women in the downtown east side in terms of homelessness, there is a commonality of intent in creating space and agency for these women to have a voice, um, in whatever voice that is, whatever voice they want to share. Um, so how how's that for a good answer to turn it around to not <laughs> really? Well, I think I think it's a it's a very it's. It, it's interesting that it's it's doesn't it seems so obvious to yeah. me, yeah. Um, and I think maybe as creators it's obvious to us because we've been in the room and we've seen transformation happen when when you give people agency or when you uh, encourage them um, to have a voice, and and say to them you know you do have power you right. can uh, share your story we want you to share your story you're welcome, um, and and so I find it kind of mystifying why police budgets keep going up and social development and community development seems off to the side as, as a frill because it isn't, it, it, to me it's not a frill. It's mm -hmm. such a necessary action if we want to uh, um, have a balance within our society, which I think we should be striving for. <laughs> anyway, so that's a pretty good answer. <laughs> Yeah, and, and, and thanks for saying that because part of the, the thing about this whole, you know, the closing down of Oppenheimer Park, 
you know, um, hotels apparently opening up for people that have been homeless. I mean, there is some sort of movement happening in understanding. Um, I'm not on the, on, on the pulse of what that is, but seeing in my city coming down to the fire hall theater today and, and, and driving by the Oppenheimer park that's blocked off, there was something very menacing about that. Well, it's interesting because Oppenheimer Park is um, uh, was originally called the Powell Street Grounds at one point, and it was the uh, basically at the center of the core of the Japanese community, Japanese Canadian community. And of course, when when things happened and the Japanese Canadian individuals were taken away um, and interred during the Second World War, even when they came back, the the, when they were allowed to return to Vancouver, um, they were forced to kind of move from their community. So it, that park has sat there as a, and it's been a gathering place for protest for years. It's also been a baseball diamond for the Asahi baseball team, a great gathering place for the Japanese Canadian community. And when it was taken over by the tents, um, it was so unfortunate because really there are people in the community who carve there, children who play there, so it ceased to be a park. So now in this time, they're trans trying to, and I think relocated quite a few people to homes, but a lot of people are now camped um, on park, um, the Portland, uh, close to Crab Park. So there, the, the problem wasn't solved, it was kind of semi-relocated. Um, and when I go by the park and I see it, um, with the fences up, I know they're trying to restore the grounds and trying to turn it back to being a park that anyone in the neighborhood can use as a park because it has ceased to be that. So it's kind of a, a challenge. I mean, I, I, I look at people having to relocate and be intense and choose to be intense because they don't want to be in SROs. And I go, why can't we just figure out a place for that to be done safely? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But uh, yeah, the whole SRO and homelessness issue is, is um, everyone is entitled to a home. So yes. yeah, we're, we're in a, 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 a great country, are we not? A very rich country, yes. No? And um, in, in, in saying that, there's over 100 um, First Nations communities that have shitty water. You know, there's, there's homelessness that's happening, you know, here in Vancouver. Um, so something, I hope that in this, this COVID-19 thing that's happening now, that we get to, to sort of really assess and, and, and be motivated to, to, to make some positive changes in these, these areas, right? Of, of, you know, we all want safety for our children. We all want to have clean water. We all want, a, um, you know, a safe home. I mean, it's all, it's, it's, I, I, I mean, I think being in the downtown east side here, it's such a, a core of, of all of those ailments within our society in when we talk about the, the opioid crisis and the homelessness and, and mental um, health, 
you know. There and I think it was all, I mean, I don't know all the specifics behind it, but I think it was uh, initiative to sort of keep all the same kind of problems in the same area. And I, yeah. uh, and, and obviously someone made those choices. Right. Um. <laughs> and here's Fire Hall Theater in, in the midst of it. <laughs> well, and we've been here a long time, yeah. so we've watched the community change a lot. And yeah. um, uh, some for the good and some for the bad, for yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I think the whole um, the COVID thing that that's going on, which I kind of watch. Interestingly enough, there have not been that many COVID cases in the downtown east side because um, health um, authorities have stepped up and tried to help. Um, and certainly, it could have been a lot more. But one of the things that I see is I actually see families doing things together. Mm. Um, when I'm and I've been doing a lot of walking, so not necessarily. In um, well, I've, even in this neighborhood, uh, because people tend to feel that there aren't any families down here, and there are a lot of families down here. Hence, the the ability to go to a park in the neighborhood, if there was a park, right. or if there is a park. But um, I'm hoping that um, that through this participation of both the father and mother, if there is a father and mother, uh, in in family life, that that will have a positive effect down mm-hmm. down the way as well. Um, and that people will have the time to stop and listen, and really listen. Right. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, um, yeah, I mean, in in terms of family and, and, uh, I mean, I I have a daughter, and I think part of the, you know, just to be perfectly honest with everyone here listening, is I have a daughter that that is, is on the streets, who has um, an addiction in mental health um, up in actually she's up in um, in northern British Columbia. So the the work that I do is is about that you know is about how do I how do I get her back home you know um, and I think that when why I do the work I do within uh, the downtown east side here in utilizing art as a uh, healing, I suppose, but it's more just about creating the space for women just to tell the kind of story that they want to tell and to help facilitate that um, and and support, you know, uh, the women that are uh, down here. Um, I've done a lot of work, um, uh, both artistically uh, and have facilitated um, um, workshop sessions on uh, reconciliation and the impacts of the residential school systems within um, the intergenerational impacts of residential school systems on families. Um, in all of those, in all of those um, realities, what I'm wanting to do today, what I'm wanting, what's kind of emerged in the work that I've done in the last year is I kind of want to be, uh, <laughs> I kind of want to be nicely obsessed with my own culture. <laughs> I, I kind of want to just, what is it within my culture that, that I can share in a way that allows people to, to, to participate in it? So one of the things that, um, I'm continuing, and certainly the women that are part of the SRO project are invited uh, along as well, um, is 
and I've put a couple proposals. This is what I've been doing in the COVID-19 is I wrote two proposals, one federal, one provincial. Now we're getting this, to it. To do this project. And the project basically simply is to work with residential school survivors, day, federal day school survivors, intergenerational children of survivors um, to create hand drum songs. Simple. Simple, but also very, I mean, how empowering is that? If you, yeah. if you, I mean, will you go through the process of having them also learn how to make a hand drum? Yes. Yeah, so the whole, yeah. yes. Well, and, and, yeah. and, and I have uh, women from the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squamish that are gonna participate in, in the creation of, uh, of the song protocols. Um, I've reached out to uh, Terry Hunter and Savannah Walling uh, that, are, that are part of Vancouver Moving Theatre, but they're also do the Heart of the City Festival um, to actually make the presentation at the Heart of the City Festival. So, I mean, all, the, all of the, the idea of, of these workshop sessions are like five workshop sessions that these uh, up to ten uh, people can partake in. Um, to create hand drum songs. And I've been doing that for the last 20-odd years in the work that I've done, and it's never been something that I've really... It, it's quite spiritual, but it's also something that, that just sort of naturally happens. I find it interesting that you say... You said that you find that you... Uh, I think you said something about being obsessed by your own culture. Yeah. And, and, and I go, well, why wouldn't you be? <laughs> and then I start to think, well, is that because this colonizer filter yeah. has shaped your, your life yeah. just as it shaped mine and Absolutely. everyone else's, but m more so in terms I of erasing so. a culture? I think what, what I mean by that is that there are people that are fighting in the front lines of the pipeline. You know, there are people that are, that, are, that are having to deal with police brutality. There are individuals that are working within a variety of, of legal constructs within Canadian society to, to, to bring forth uh, a deeper understanding of, of, of uh, um, Indigenous rights and title. But what if I just simply talk about creating a hand drum song? And that the, the, the people may only know a few words in their language. And so that we research with them, what is their hand drum rhythms? You know, whether they're from the, the uh, Taltan or Nehiliatan Cree speaking people, right. or whether they're uh, whatever nation they are, that we support their research and support their... Um, process of creating their song and allowing them to discover what is kind of at the core of who they are yeah yeah i think that's a fabulous project <laughs> yeah so hopefully hopefully i'll um i'll get someone to i'll get these funders to support it so we'll see now i have always found um right from the first time i met uh Indigenous people, um, that there's a sense of humor that amazes me. I mean, it's, uh, and it, maybe it's a survival sense of humor, I don't know. But I, when I first uh, visited, one of my aunts used to teach 
at Morley on the Stony Reserve in Alberta. And her nickname was Bessie Paleface by the people that, that from the, the nation there. Uh, so she was called Bessie Paleface and she invited me to stay with her. And I and, and of course when I went to stay with her, we spent a lot of time laughing and talking with the people there and I couldn't get over how willing um, they were to laugh <laughs> and, and, and how much humor there was and, and yet here I was this little white privileged girl going to a place that they were dealing with issues. Now I know that reserve is quite wealthy now I believe because of oil and gas but at that time it wasn't and, and um, I, I couldn't, I, I went how can you possibly laugh when these things are going on? It was a real learning experience. So in a lot of the writing uh, of plays that I've read, certainly in Drew Hayden Taylor's plays, there's an attempt to make sure that humor is there. Uh, even in Taryn's work that we're going to do, White Noise, I had uh, a huge, huge sense of humor in that young man, and it's all very applicable, even though there's a really strong message. Mm -hmm. So what is that all about? Yeah, what is that all about? <laughs> well, sometimes you have to laugh at your own traumas, I suppose, and, and, and what keeps the strength, what keeps, uh, um, keeps you having the strength. There's a story about Nanabujo, and, and the thing about Nanabujo and Wasagichak that uh, the, these are trickster characters. There's always, like, there's, um, I've, I've had these conversations with, like, um, uh, Stephen Hill, who teaches theater over at SFU and stuff, too, and, and, and he, he teaches clown work, and he teaches, you know, and then he brings me in to talk about these trickster stories and, like, what's the difference, right? right. And the fact that, that for clown work, um, there's a hierarchy, right? There's, you know, there's a hierarchy in that. Within, within the trickster uh, uh, stories is that they are, the trickster is a, 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 an a, a spirit, half spirit, half human um, transformer, if you will, that, that comes down to help the humans um, to, to remember, help the humans understand plant medicines, help the humans in, in being good humans in terms of the, their relationship to, to Gigawinawaski, to Mother Earth, and mm -hmm. to, to Father Sky. And, and, and they are the conduit of, of the teachings of, of, and the ceremonies. So in this one story, where um, uh, Nanabujo is at the at the shoreline, and um, he sees these these um, these birds, and he pretends he's he's ill. He pretends he's ill, and he says to these birds, "Well, you know, come on and help me, help me with uh, catching these these fish and this, you know, like if you could do the work for me, because I'm so lame, I'm so I, I, I'm." I, I just can't do it. So the birds are like, oh, you poor little thing. And so they go and they give them the food. And, um, and in that process, those birds come close to um, Nanabujo and he grabs one and eats one. Well, the birds are all pissed off. You know, <laughs> Nanabujo's lying there with a big belly and feathers are all around him and stuff like that. And, and they start yelling at him. And he says, well, why are you taking, you know, you took a life of ours, and how dare you, how dare you? And he goes, well, I have to eat, I have to eat. So the birds take him, and he walks away, and then they, they, they 
figure out, like the birds all come together and go, we got to get this guy, you know, like he's going to, you know. So the part of the story is that he comes back, they lay some food out for him, and they said, here's the food. He eats the food. The food is all rotten, and, and he has to jump into the river because it's so hot, and he's trying to, to get away. <laughs> so the always the moral of the story is, is certainly about when you're greedy, or when, when, when humans become greedy or when humans become, there's always these lessons in the stories. And sometimes, and I love the stories that um, um, Woody Morrison, who's Haida Gwaii, um, he, he shares a lot of stories. And, and I've heard his stories told in a variety of different audiences. And he um, could tell a story so differently depending on the audience. And I think that's part of the where the humor comes in is that who is it that you're talking to and in what way do you want to talk to them and and if you've ever heard uh, Woody Morrison tell some stories he's pretty he's pretty brilliant in in that and again coming back to what we talked about before and responding and listening is that it's it's about um, really listening to to who is in the room and how am I going to to tell a story this is the whole thing about storytellers and the oral traditions is that this story I'm going to tell, okay, there's children in the room. I'm not going to tell the, the, the you know, I'm the, tell racy the, <laughs> the racy one. The racy one. I'm going to tell Poor this one. Poor choice of words, racy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the so, sexy one. That's right. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you know, what, what humor is, is always about healing. It's always about um, being able to, to not take ourselves so seriously. And because sometimes in, in, especially in this life, we can take ourselves way too serious about, um, you know, how we get offended or how, you know, how, you know, we hold regrets. And a lot of the, the stories of Trickster and Anabujo and, um, and uh, Wasagichuk stories are about how those stories um, play with our human condition. You know, whether they, they're moral stories or whether they're just stories about be of, ret, of reprimand, right. you know. Um, there's always something about um, that every engagement that we have, that there is a learning. Um, and if you really listen, what is it that, that it is for you too? Well, and I think that's an interesting uh, parallel to what we talked a bit about with David Diamond, who was here on our last podcast, oh, which yeah. which was the the role in uh, theater of the impressed uh, of, of the oppressed of the joke the Joker the Joker yeah and how the plays were joked, mm -hmm. and I kept wondering about that, and then I started to run up the parallel to you know when you see jokers at in the Prime, uh, in the in the courts, uh, in the uh, English courts in the olden days, the Joker was always the one who was telling the truth to the king, uh, but did it in a funny way so that the king didn't kill him. I mean, it, <laughs> <laughs> so it seems to me that the role of the Joker, the trickster, um, is really so important to all cultures that yeah. we we have to have that way to learn these messages and 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 riffing on the humor thing people listen much more when it's funny whether they hear it is another is another matter <laughs> but but the hope is that they would be listening right. now i have one more question okay. and then we'll try to move towards wrapping this up because this is really interesting stuff is um, when you were telling uh, um, me about Wasagachak and Nanabushu, Nanabushu? Nanabujo. 
Nana Bujo. Um, and I first learned that as Nana Bush, yeah. right? Yeah, Nana Bush. Um, you said uh, he, and I'm, I'm curious, he, she. Well, that's what I'm curious about, because I understood that in a lot of indigenous languages, there's no gender. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. So do you think gender is what, the, the fact that we define gender in our languages now is part of the reason why we have such challenges around uh, sex and definition of gen definition of sex uh, sex the, I'm talking about the genders the definition of female male yeah yeah um, what I understand of the Cree language is that it's not uh, gender specific but it's about the fact that you have a role an auntie or an uncle right you know and that there's a prefix that's put 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 on there so there was always those kind of uh, those kind of things um, I find it interesting, though, that the, the Latinx um, and the Spanish-speaking, there's a movement in the Spanish-speaking world to actually get rid of gender. Hmm, interesting. And then I discovered yeah. that, of course, a lot of indigenous language don't have yeah. gender. It's not gender-specific. That's the, right. The titles right. are maybe, yeah. as you said, defining roles, but it's not about you're on that side and I'm on this side. Yeah. <laughs> I think what's interesting about um, you, the, 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 what that ideology is in terms of male, female, and, and, and roles per se, is that it's usually been about what skills that, that young children grow up into. And, and historically, and what I understand in some of the stories that I know, is that some of these children that grow up in our communities are... Um, have a specific skill that are that's that's honed, and and then um, within the family, then they would go to those specific areas that have those skills, whether it's uh, hunting or gathering food or or medicine, or uh, being with uh, you know um, people. There's a lot of variety of roles that these children have. Uh, been th that the adults see them have and, and they're uh, put into places that, that give them those skills further. Now, not that we live like that today, but in the ceremonies as I was growing up, and I can only speak about what I, what I saw and, and what I've experienced, is that there were certain things within um, the ceremonies that I questioned mm. um, about how I was as a woman, as a young girl, or as a young, yeah, as a young woman as well. Um, how was I to be in, how was I to dress, to sit, to sing within a specific ceremony? And I mean, I, I would question it because there were certain things within my family, especially with my, the late, bro my late brother, uh, Frank, that he, he would do that I would question. And it wasn't about what's wrong and what's right, but it was just wanting to understand why is it this way. Mm -hmm. You know, women wearing, you know, uh, dresses and, you know, up to hear with, uh, um, to, you know, uh, with with uh, uh, long uh, gowns or uh, 
within the sweat. Right, right. Where we had to be, you know, right. uh, covered and stuff. So there were certain things that. So when I when we talk about sort of gender and 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 um, specific, what does what that mean? What that means? I mean, for me, growing up, I always questioned it. And, and when I, what I mean by questioning it is like, why is it that I have to do it this way? Why do I have to sit a certain way? Right. Why is it that I can't do certain things when I'm on my moon time? Right. You know, so there was a lot of things that, that um, and, and, and there's very specific teachings, you know. And, and for my family, there were certain teachings as well. And it's, I'm not saying I agree or disagree. What I'm saying is that as a, as a young woman, you know, uh, raised in the north end of Winnipeg and um, grew up with an incredibly strong mother, uh, no father, uh, but incredible brothers. I was raised, I have, uh, uh, you know, f three older brothers that, that uh, protected me and loved me. And, and, uh, but it was, I was always questioning, like, why is this different? Is it different because I'm a woman, and if I'm, a, if it's different? So I mean, those kind of questions. I mean, I, I always have. So I, I, I can't answer. No, you know? I, I don't know that there is a, yeah. is really an answer because I sometimes think that uh, those traditions that that were put in place yeah. for women um, were put in place sometimes for protection, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, sometimes for um, uh, because it made sense. Yeah. <laughs> but I think in some cases now we've gone to the place that. Uh, and I'm not talking about indigenous choices. I'm talking yeah. about generally that we've gone to the yeah. place that perhaps some of them don't make sense anymore, and they're trying. They're really time to be revisited. Yeah. Um, yeah. So before sure. we wrap this up, I'd be cool. really curious to find out um, what if you had um, if someone said to you, "Okay, Renai, uh, we would like you to do this project, or we would like you to do a project." Um, and it's a creative project. Uh, don't worry about money. Uh, <laughs> and and it's something that's going to be for the live stage. It's not a film. What would you do? If it was a live... Pro uh, <laughs> 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 oh, my God. Do you have a favorite what piece that do? you read somewhere or you want to write oh. that you feel should be happening on stage in what Vancouver? What that's coming to me right now, and it's never been in Vancouver, is Thompson Highway's The Rose. Oh, that's a beautiful piece, yes. I would yeah. love yeah. to do that one. I would love to, to uh, I mean, Thompson Highway is such an incredible, uh, profound individual and, 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 and very flippant. With a great way. sense of humor, with I was a great say. sense of, oh my God, <laughs> yes, yes, I'll have to tell you the stories when I saw him in... Uh, in Scotland at the Edinburgh Fr uh, Fringe Festival last year, and he talked to uh, he talked about sex with, ah. the, with a bunch of Scottish people in the room. It was great. Anyways, I would do that one. Okay, well that yeah. sounds like a good one. We did Ernestine Shush. The only Thompson Highway piece we've done here is Ernestine Shushwap yeah. gets her trout with Tantu Cardinal and mm -hmm. uh, uh, Kim Harvey and a and Lauren Cardinal directed it. Yeah. It was a great time, and his. It, it, I don't know that people understand that piece as being funny, but I found a lot of it very humorous yeah. um, in, in how he structured it, so it actually not only educated us about what had happened uh, in terms of the treaty um, and then the 
taking of the land around Kamloops, yeah. but it was just like, I went, this is so clever and you were so funny. And Tantu was of course fabulous in it, yes. but. Yeah. Um, all right, well, I, I just wanna wrap this up and thank you very much for coming. Um, I also wanna say to those people who are out there listening, uh, that I apologize for the fact that we've had so much background noise from the street work. Yeah. <laughs> and I hope you really can hear what we've been talking about and not listen to the background noise. And I guess I would say that um, in, in um, in just as you go through life, perhaps that's what we should try to do is not listen to all the background noise. But Renai, is there anything else you'd like to share with us today? Uh, no, I think I'm, I'm happy. Thank you for allowing me to, to, to share. I think uh, share some words and, and it, it's like, it's like a freaking convoluted conversation. I'm like, what would I really say here? We're all been all over the map. So Apologize for that, but thank you, Donna, for inviting uh, me. I, I would just say in response to that, that that's part of what these conversations are about. They're meant to be conversations, and usually conversations don't head in a straight line. <laughs> okay, good. As far as I know. When they're with me, they don't anyway. <laughs> so thank you very much for coming and doing this, Renai. Hi, hi. Dramatic Pause is recorded at the Firehall Arts Centre in downtown Eastside, Vancouver. It is presented by our artistic producer Donna Spencer and produced by technical director Alastair Wallace. The Firehall Arts Centre has been producing and presenting Canadian theatre and dance since 1982, and we couldn't do this without the help of our generous sponsors, benefactors and patrons. We'd like to thank the Canada Council for the Arts, Canadian Heritage, BC Arts Council, BC Gaming Commission and the City of Vancouver, as well as our season sponsors, the Georgia Strait and East Van Graphics, and especially our many generous individual donors. If you'd like to support Canadian theatre and artists by becoming a donor, you can visit our website, www.firehallartcentre.ca. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect those held by the Firehall Arts Centre, its employees or its supporting bodies.